Ghost aircraft in the vicinity. No known aircraft in the vicinity. Seems to be playing some sort of game. He's flying over me. Tell the Sierra Juliet, it's not an aircraft, it's... Can you describe the, uh, the aircraft? As it's flying past, it's a wrong shape. Cannot identify it, it has such speed. It's before me right now, Melbourne. How large would the, um, the object be? Seems like it's stationary. What it's doing right now is orbiting. The thing is just orbiting on top of me. It's also got a green light and a sort of metallic-like. It's shiny on the outside. It's just vanished. That strange aircraft's hovering on top of me again. It's hovering and it's not an aircraft. Good day there, mites. Welcome back to a... Nope, not going to do it. <laughs> just... Please don't. Uh, I, I, I really... It was kind of... I don't know. It was kind of close. I feel like... Dude, I don't know about... I think well, it's a matter of just like really committing. Just feel like... I feel like we're Australian now. If I'm, if I'm just going to be... Could I be so bold? I mean, I do have a new love for the country after these, I've always had a love. these episodes. Welcome back to your favorite podcast, That Would Be Rad, a podcast that majors in 80s and 90s nostalgia, comic culture, all things paranormal, and minors in retro video games, Australia, tabletop RPGs, pre-internet mysteries, and raising our kids to be half as cool as we were back in the 80s. I'm your host, Tyler Vince, and this is your other host, Woody Brown. Hey, man. Did every Did time I? that you do like our welcome... I got to say, in my head, I'm just thinking, can he do it? Can <laughs> I he make the, it through without I'd having the same to with swallow? Yours. <laughs> <laughs> you're like, oh, and then... <laughs> Jesus. Uh, I mean, I'm sure you're going to put it in what the outtakes. Mean, what do you mean you do the same thing with mine? I do, that never well, happens to me. I'm like, is he going to make it all the way through? Or of course is he, he is. Like, you nope. know, like, it's, uh, come on. This is you. You always. This is how I you wonder if the sun's gonna come up tomorrow. This is I mean, how why it would goes. you wonder that kind of hey, stuff. It is a 90s nostalgia, comic culture. Nope. <laughs> Welcome back to your favorite podcast. That's how you sound like a man. That, that, okay, so that's your. So basically, to you when you're listening, that's what I hear. Yeah. You mean just like this rich, just such a rich voice, like almost Welcome like Batman is talking to you. You know what right. I mean? And then whenever I hear you, you're like. Uh, Welcome back to you. <laughs> oh, that's exactly how I sound that's to myself exactly. also. Yeah. Well, okay. I loathe my voice. I mean, this was a bad career move, I feel like. <laughs> well, it's not like I love my voice necessarily. I'm just used yes, to it. Yes, you do. You were so no, proud of that voice. You were literally my lead singer. Well, I know, man, but I'm just saying, <laughs> like, uh, yeah, I'm just used to it. All right, pal, what are we doing today? Oh uh, man, today, look, this is kind of we're, this is a celebration of firsts here. Yeah, right. This is our first time ever having a three-part sort of series, also known as a trilogy or a, tri- a trilogy, mm-hmm. you know. <clears throat> so that's exciting in and of itself, but mm-hmm. I just really felt like last week, man, as we were kind of buttoning up the Knowles family and and talking about the Min Min lights and exploring like all these other things, we really needed to have this third part where we, you know, dove further into uh, 
Frederick Valentich's uh, disappearance because we didn't even get a chance to last time. There's a lot of other stuff that we want to talk about too. So yeah, so I think what we're gonna do today is uh, since since Frederick Valentich was mine way back two episodes ago on that sort of primer episode, first part of the trilogy. I kind of broke down his story a little bit and... Yeah, I think this is, hold on, I think this is a perfect time too. If you haven't listened to episodes one mm-hmm. or two of this three-part trilogy mm-hmm. about the UFOs in Australia, then you need to go back and kind of re- take a refresher course. Yeah. Listen to part one where we literally just present these three fascinating stories to you mm-hmm. um, as an auditory experience. And then part two, we kind of go further and dive deeper into the Knowles account and and so forth. So take a quick pause if you haven't caught up, catch mm-hmm. up, and then mm-hmm. come back. Also, uh, before we do get started, I think I should preface and say for a trilogy on all things sort of paranormal throughout Australia, we haven't forgot about the Yowie. We haven't forgot about mm-hmm. the West Hall incident. Those are getting their own episodes, mm-hmm. so... Fear not. Dude, I mean, what we've figured out throughout this journey is that there's so much more to explore in Australia and this Mm -hmm. part of the world, uh, frankly. Yeah, uh, Tasmania, Australia. New Zealand. New Zealand, which, man, have you still not seen Hunt for the Wilder People? Oh, man, I knew you were going to ask me that. No, no. You are the worst, literally. Dude, you still haven't even watched Lost, so don't even get started with me. Okay. Okay, so one movie that's maybe an hour and a half versus like 12 seasons of a show. Six seasons. That's just, that's not even comparable. It's worth it. Anyway, so Frederick Valentich was a 20-year-old Australian pilot that uh, disappeared mid-flight somewhere over the Bass Strait just before dusk on the evening of October 21st, 1978. The flight was to depart from Moorabin Airport, located in a suburb of Melbourne, Victoria, Australia, and was set to arrive just before dusk on King Island, Tasmania. God, just like having a tough time. Yeah, I mean, you need a lozenge. (laughs) A lozenge. Uh, Valentich was a young pilot with only 150 hours of flight time under his belt, but he was known for being incredibly determined and having a real love for all things anime. And having a real love for all things aviation. Having a real love for all things animation. <laughs> love the Disney movies. Huge, huge, huge fan of Fantasia. Huge Chuck Jones fan. Uh, he had twice applied to enlist in the Royal Australian Air Force, but was rejected because of poor test scores. And also, before I continue, let me just say that like I'm just kind of laying out a little bit of his character because the naysayers and the debunkers are real fast to go to, you know, well, he was doing this or this. And we'll get into it as as we continue. But I just, I'm just kind of laying out like sort of a brief outline of who this guy was uh, that was involved in this pretty bizarre uh, incident. He was a member of the RAAF Air Training Corps and volunteered at the local airport multiple times a week. His dream was to become a full-time commercial pilot, but due to his poor achievement record and failing his license examinations multiple times, he would never reach his goal. On the evening of his flight, the weather was absolutely perfect, low wind, high visibility, and very little cloud cover. So basically this guy leaves the airport to go on this like little short flight. During the the transmission, they ask what he's doing, and he says he's, he's picking up some friends or but, but I guess the excuse that he gave to his family and girlfriend was that he was going to get crawfish. 
And I think he kind of had a mentor, this guy who was kind of helping him on his test and helping him, you know, like an older gentleman at the airport that was a pilot. And he had told him that, you know, he was going to get these crawfish or I guess kind of like lobsters, uh, almost like Gulf lobsters, mm-hmm. you know, where like here in Florida, like in the Keys, at least I would go lobstering as a kid. And they're not like the like main lobsters. They don't have like the big claws, but they do have big tails. I mean, you still eat, you know, lobster tails. It's just like they're just missing their claws. Mm, they're like a um, smaller variety. A little bit. I mean, they get pretty big though. Mm. Uh, but yeah, not like the the main lobsters have like the giant claws mm-hmm, and stuff. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he was, he, the plan was, was to fly uh, to King Island and pick up these lobsters and then fly back. And so... When he said he was picking up his friends, one of the things to note is that it was illegal to carry any sort of live live animals, or that would have technically been illegal. So, oh, so I that's can, what he put on like the the manifest report or whatever. Right, right, okay. right. Yeah, and and honestly, I can kind of relate to that. I mean, it's like you know, and it was also said that he he had packed you know four life jackets to kind of give the vibe of like. Mm. Okay. Oh, I'm picking yeah, up he my land, friends. He lands in King Island and, mm-hmm. and well, you know, theoretically, if he lands right. in King Island and they're kind of like asking him questions, he's like, well, I got my full life jackets here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. It was like, oh, I'm going to get my friends. When in reality, I think he was probably, he. so this guy also was just like obsessed with flight. Like he, and it's kind of a, you know, it, it kind of does suck because he was a good dude. He's only 20 years old. You know, his dad, like, is his dad a pilot as well or, like, some kind of war hero or something? I, something like that. I know his dad was, like, a big, played, like, a pretty big role in, um, you know, his love for aviation. Like, I, and his dad apparently helped, like, fund, you know, when he would go on these, like, little flights and stuff. Like, his dad was, like, really always sort of behind him. But, yeah, so he was flying to get these crawfish, or, or this is what a lot of people think, under the guise of saying, hey, I'm going to pick up some friends. On King Island, I'm going to fly back. You know, it was also said that he would just come up with excuses uh, just so he could fly. Mm. And it's much like, it reminds me of guys that have like motorcycles. They're like, oh, I got to go. Yeah, any excuse to ride Any it, excuse. Right, yeah. His yeah, buddy's exactly. like, hey, man, there's some, we got fresh crawfish at the <laughs> uh, at the supermarket. And he's like, no, 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 I'll get these. These are better. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Over on King Island. Yeah. Well, the, the, the thing with that is like, you know, he wasn't a great, test taker really mm-hmm. you know he, he was very like thorough when it came to sort of his follow-through with things mm-hmm. but you know it's like he had failed his exam his license exam you know three times or something and he had Im- applied twice like i said to uh, enlist in the royal australian air force mm-hmm. and failed twice rejected because of poor grades but and it kind of sucks but at this point though like he'd already passed and he had like a fair amount of Flying hours under his belt, right? I mean... Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, he, he had 150 hours, which is nothing to, like, scoff at, but he was still a fairly new, you know, pilot, okay. really. But, yeah, I mean, he he had a license to fly. He was just... He, his sort of goal was to become, like, a commercial pilot, mm-hmm. to, like, you know, ferry people to islands in the area and, you know, that kind of thing. Real quick, I don't think we mentioned it when we presented the story initially, but the type of plane that he was flying in is a... A Cessna 182, which is, mm-hmm. I mean, I've actually, uh, that's the exact model of Cessna that I flew in um, when mm-hmm. doing, uh, in Seattle, whenever I rode, they modified it to be a seaplane so it could land. Yep. Mm-hmm. And dude, when you're in that cockpit, it feels like 
I mean, it's smaller than a Volkswagen, dude. My my knees were like up against, like the pilot was right in front of me. There's yeah. another passenger next to him. And then me and Clayton were in the back and it was just like, I mean, you're just, it's so tiny, but it's so, oh, I mean, that's it's funny. just awesome, man. You feel like you're part of the air in some ways. Mm-hmm. I can see how people get like super enthusiastic about wanting yeah. to learn to fly because it's almost like you really are flying like an old 60s Volkswagen or something in the air. Oh, yeah. I mean, I mean, quite literally. I mean, even even half of, well, probably even more than half of the uh, the commercial airplanes that you fly, like, you know, Delta or mm-hmm. like the big airlines. I mean, most of those airplanes are still from the 60s, 70s, and mm-hmm. they're just, you know, they just kind of fix them as they go along, which is a little scary. Uh, but, you know, that's what it is. After these messages, we'll be right back. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com wonder. Hey viewers, I've just been telling the Yanks how Australia is the best place for a holiday and the friendliest place on earth. The beaches are crisp and clean, beer's cold, and there's plenty of shrimps on the bar. The least we can do is make sure everyone's smiling. I'm not asking you to rent out the spare bedroom or anything. Just flash the pearly whites and say good day to a visitor. Good day. Good day. Good day. Good day. Come on. Don't make a liar out of me. America's future can be determined by our dreams and our visions. It was very intense For over 200 years, there have been reports of giant man-like creatures. From another dimension, another world, I don't know. The most intriguing mystery on the North American continent. Hey, this is Bryce Johnson from the Bigfoot Collectors Club, and you're listening to Tyler and Woody on That Would Be Rad, because that is rad. One thing to note is that in that recording, a lot of people, including me, initially thought that that was the actual yeah. recording, but it's not. It's just like a, you know, like a... Uh, reenactment. Reenactment, that's the word. And so a couple things that I feel were sort of missing in the reenactment, and this is something that's... A, this this whole tape of this transmission is, um, is pretty important. So apparently this transmission, you can kind of find it 
if you look really, really deep in the internet. Folks that are obsessed with aviation and, and pilots and stuff, I guess in the in the early days of the internet, they were sort of passing this this tape around. Initially, I think it was only given to Frederick Valentich's dad, uh, mm-hmm. so he could he could pretty much hear his last his son's sort of last you know transmission, which is kind of sad. Yeah. And and also, man, in doing this, it really makes you feel just the amount of like just such a massive lack of closure mm-hmm. in this case. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like I feel like you would almost feel better knowing that like your son or daughter, you know had died yeah. instead of this giant question mark and not even that but it's like such a weird sort of series of events leading up and you know to the disappearance mm-hmm. and apparently on the re- oh and then they'd also given it to the guy who owned the plane so the plane was kind of like chartered you know how you would you go to the beach and you can like charter a boat to go out to fish or whatever mm-hmm. for the day it yeah. was kind of one of those kind of deals yeah. apparently earlier that morning the guy at the airport had tested the airplane, had flew out before six in the morning and um, came back. Everything was fine. You know, so it was, it checked out. There was nothing, there were no sort of like malfunctions anywhere, yeah. you know. Throughout the years, I don't know if it came from the dad or, or this guy, but uh, somehow there's a copy of this around. I've looked everywhere. I, I mentioned it to you. I don't know if yeah. you happened to look. Yeah. I, I I tried to find the audio, and all I ever came up with essentially was the uh, the, the reenactment. Yeah, yeah, same. Um, so a couple things that are a little different in the reenactment. It sounds pretty. He sounds like pretty calm, and that does technically line up to how he was. Apparently, he was really good under pressure. He was really calm. He was like, you know, thorough. Kind of like. I mean, that's a good quality to have if you're a yeah, pilot yeah. in general, but certainly a commercial pilot, too. You want yeah, somebody 100%. Can, you know. Yeah, 100%. You know, on forums and stuff, the the old-timers that were able to hear the actual audio had said that, you know, he was pretty calm under pressure all, but, like, a, as the, the audio progressed, you could hear him kind of getting a little more scared, you know. Yeah. Uh, especially at the end where they come on and they say, is it an aircraft? And he says, it's not an aircraft. And then this is something that was left out. It says on the tra- the actual transmission, the microphone stays open for 17 seconds. So that's 17 seconds of mm. metallic scraping noise. Jeez. And this is weird because you don't really hear this anywhere uh, except when I looked on the actual transcript. And it says, in parentheses out behind it, it says a very strange pulsed noise is also audible during this transmission. But I, th- I thought that was really interesting, and uh, but yeah, the apparently the real one. By the time he says it's not an aircraft, you can you can hear it in his voice that it's like things are real bad. Yeah. He was like tremendously scared and and all that, you know. Mm-hmm. So that's about it. I mean, well, for I the mean, case, one, one of the one of the details that always kind of stood out to me once we started talking about this, and and you showed it to me, really is something that you said at the beginning, which I think is important to kind of reiterate here, and that is that you know. This is an area, uh, like the the flight path to King Island, apparently mm-hmm. is an area that is known for rough flying conditions. I don't know if it's because, you know, you know the winds that come through. Because mm-hmm. if you're looking at sort of a map of Australia, you know, just below it is Tasmania. Mm-hmm. And then to the 
I guess southeast of Australia too is, you know, New Zealand or whatever. Mm-hmm. King Island is sort of like this, in comparison, much smaller, teeny little island in between sort of Australia and Tasmania. And, oh, I don't, yeah. and then there's the, the Bass Strait. And I don't know if... Yeah, so, th- so the Bass Strait is almost like, I kind of almost compare it to like the Florida Keys. Yeah, in Panama and like... Yeah, kind of, right. it's like working its way down from like Florida to Cuba, mm-hmm. you know, if you're a, a U.S. citizen. But yeah, the Bass Strait is like this little, little area off of the coast of Melbourne. It goes down and you have, I think, three little islands. You have like New Year's mm-hmm. Island or Christmas Island. And then... Yeah, I think it's like that, Flinders Island and Cape yeah, right. Iron Island, Clark Island. Yeah, there's a bunch of like little There's a bunch bitty, of little ones. Yeah. In research, I discovered too that like at one point, I guess it was... Um, it was like a land bridge. Like you could literally walk from mm-hmm. Tasmania to Australia. Wow. And so that's that's one of the things too when, you know, when the search and rescue was sent out the next day, you know, they found nothing at all. And so it's it's a pretty shallow little area on this like little, little bass strait. Um, yeah, and I think you mentioned before we started recording, when we were just kind of talking about it in general, you and I, the, the currents and stuff in the bass strait are pretty strong, right? Yeah, that that's one of the things I learned too is that and again, I I'm not you know, there's a lot of like the technical stuff where you get into like knots and like mm-hmm. you know, the tide and the pull and everything. But apparently it, it's been said that like if if something that big would have crashed, I mean it's not like it was a huge plane, but if something of you know, that size would have crashed, the the current is like really strong through there and it would have definitely pulled it into the shore. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know. Uh, because, and that's another thing too is like which would have made it easily like found find right? yeah yeah for sure I mean even if it was just like the propeller or just any, any yeah. little thing yeah that was the thing too that I think is interesting is that when you and I were talking before I kept saying like 15,000 feet no this wasn't even this was like around like 4,500 feet mm-hmm. so he was just off the coast really when this off when, the coast of King Island? Uh, no, no, no. Uh, heading to King Island. Off okay. the coast of uh, like Moorabin Airport where okay. he took off, uh, which is like a suburb of, of uh, Melbourne. Before, like my point was essentially that even though this is a this is an area known for a kind of like rough flying conditions, mm-hmm. you know, I assume that just means like windy and choppy in terms of like the plane ride. Um, for this day in particular, it was perfect flying weather. You know, oh, yeah. like the wind speed, all of that stuff, all the stars yeah. kind of aligned, Perfect. so to speak, mm-hmm. to where this would be, in comparison to a typical day flying to King Island, this would be a much easier, smoother flight. And I think that's just something that as we dive into what people think and, you know, what has been kind of said about this case, mm-hmm. that it's important to just note that fact, I think, that the weather was just ideal for flying. Yeah, it was flawless. No wind, I think. 60 miles visibility, mm-hmm. like crazy good. It was kind of nearing the end of the day around mm-hmm. dusk, but he, you know, if if it would have went along as planned, he still would have landed during the day, you know, before mm-hmm. dark. So he, I'm going to kind of get into some other sort of cursory events that were happening around the same time. There were 11 reports in just on that day to the, the Australian Air Force, like call-ins, where they, people were having, you know, UFO sightings in the true form of, you know, lights or mm-hmm. other sort of aerial phenomenon. But that's pretty crazy. I think 
The one of the coolest ones is uh, when this happened, he went down, nobody could find him. The next day, search and rescue was sent out. You know, multiple, multiple planes, like for the next four or five days, just nonstop, nonstop. And nobody found anything. It was like he had just disappeared from the earth. Wow. Now, one thing that I do think is pretty interesting is uh, it's actually kind of known as the Bass Strait Triangle. Hmm. And throughout this area, it's really interesting because, um, I mean, there's just numerous little things. Uh, the British warship HMS Sappho in 1858 just went completely missing. And there were over 100 people on that yeah. on that boat. Yeah, the SS Federal disappeared in 1901, 1906. The SS Ferdinand Fisher, a German cargo ship, disappeared. And again, this is like pretty, pretty shallow kind of area, which is kind of weird. This was sort of weird synchronicity. So my daughter's name is Amelia Jude. Mm -hmm. uh, the SS Amelia J, a schooner, disappeared on the 10th of September. The HMAS swordsman was commissioned to search for the ship. And while searching the Bass Strait, a second ship, the Barquentine SS Southern Cross, disappeared. Mm -hmm. A military air code DH-9A engaged into the search, it would also disappear. The wreckage of the SS Southern Cross was found on King Island, but the SS Amelia J was never recovered, and neither was the air code DH-9. So it's like, imagine you have this disappearance. Well, then you send out all these other ships, and they just, they're all disappearing. It's kind of yeah, wild. Yeah, definitely. You talked about the Flinders Island in 1935. A Holy Man airliner crashed into the sea near Flinders Island with three crew and two passengers completely lost. No bodies were found. The cause of both accidents were probably a combination of human error. But yeah, so this is kind of a known place, whether, you know, whether entirely paranormal or outside of the, mm -hmm. the realm of, you know, just normal sort of mundane explanations. You know, I think of over here, we have the Bermuda Triangle, which was such a big deal when we were kids. Yeah, you're right. Uh, but, you know, I, I do feel, I, you know, you look at you look at the Bermuda Triangle and it's like, it's like how much of this stuff Really, I mean, I know a ton of ships and, and planes and stuff completely disappeared in this little area, but I do think there's also probably a good amount a good amount of uh, urban legend and right, right, embellishment, right. you know. Yeah, but I mean, that was definitely whenever you were a kid and kind of thumbing oh, through dude. books in the library and stuff. It was like Bermuda Triangle, like man. Yeah, I mean, I speaking of like uh, so when I was a kid, I'm, I'm I'm sure I've already said this, but when I was a kid, we would go to Key West, Florida, every year. And uh, every year as a kid, I remember, you know, because you'd check these books out of the library and like some of them would be like, the, you know, giant size, you know, yeah. 11 by 17 size. Every single time, all the books were Loch Ness Monster, Bigfoot, or the Bermuda Triangle. Yeah. That were like, that was the, the big three back in the day. Yeah. But anyway, I, I think it's, it's just cool to note that uh, there have been some sort of strange stuff mm -hmm. happening around that triangle. So the, the most fascinating one for me is uh, six weeks later, a plumber and amateur photographer uh, by the name of Roy Manifold mm. um, basically brought in this evidence that he took on October 21st around the same time of the flight. Mm -hmm. uh, he had set up a camera and, I mean, literally has all these photos that I think on some of the photos you can see like little orbs, mm -hmm. which a lot of debunkers kind of write off as like, well, maybe it was a lens flare, maybe mm -hmm. it was this, that. But then there's two photos of this like strange sort of black oval looking like smudge. Mm -hmm. um, I'm looking at the photo right now. 
I and think it's so funny because I was about before you started talking about it, I was like, hey mm-hmm. man, did you come across Roy Manifold's photograph? Yeah, yeah. Uh I'm looking at it right now and it seems to me like this guy's kind of setting up a because you know, I think maybe a lot of listeners are like, why would somebody just have a... Fr-? So he's like setting up his camera, I think, to capture like a beautiful sort of sunset, sunset right? Mm-hmm. And so just imagine this just gorgeous sort of scene on the mm-hmm. coast of this little, you know, coastal area. Uh, I think it's Cape Otto, Otway or something. Otway. Mm-hmm. And yeah. he's got it set up. The sun's going down. It's just perfectly gorgeous. In the yeah. picture that I'm looking at, there is no lens flare. Mm-hmm. And then there's just this sort of dark mass on the photograph. Mm-hmm. Um, well, he he even said right that he thought it might have been like a developing error, or well, or, he he thought so, but it was it was handled by like experts even up until like into the 2000s. This, this happened in 1978, but it was even sent off to Kodak, and every single one of them had said no. This was something in the like in the the actual photography mm-hmm. you know there's there was no no error yeah. nothing like that there's also other footage that you can find where you know like i can pull a photo into photoshop and like boost the contrast mm-hmm. or pull out this or that and like you can kind of see like a little more of like what the image is you know and uh it kind of does almost look like like a puff of smoke with like a little like like trail almost like mm-hmm. a contrail off mm-hmm. of it mm-hmm Almost, you know what it reminds me of now that you said that? You know, like those, um, I mean, I think we've all probably seen some of these lately, but like the images of, oh yeah, you know, up in the sky or something where some of the SpaceX, SpaceX stuff, yeah. right? And it just looks, mm-hmm. you see those condensation trails of the of the rocket and stuff. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what yeah. it sort of reminds me of. And I mean, like this American photo analyst or something determined that it looked like to them a metal object yeah, apparently in a cloud of exhaust. Now, something that you didn't, or at least I didn't hear it, say that he, you know, this is he came forward six weeks after the disappearance, but he is alleging that this photograph was taken the night of the disappearance. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm saying. Yeah, yeah, it's insane. Yeah. So what what's cool about all these these stories, these like little sort of cursory, extemporaneous kind of events that happened. All of these happen, for the most part, on the exact day, around the same time. And so he even said that, you know, he didn't have the exact time, but when he heard about, this is another thing. So the Valentich event was kind of big news. I mean, it was Mm -hmm. everywhere, you know, made it all the way, it's rounds in the press to uh, the U.S. And I mean, it was kind of like big news there for a while. You know, so everybody kind of knew about it. So when he first heard about it, he immediately thought, like, wait a minute, this is where I was. And that's when he, like, went back to these photos and was like, whoa. Like, yeah. And all of these events that I'm talking about, if you believe in every single one of these, which, I mean, who knows? Maybe maybe they're all fake. Maybe maybe nothing even happened to him. Mm-hmm. Maybe it was a, a total, you know, scam. And he, you know, flew off to to God knows where, to live another life. None of the evidence would suggest that, but I'm just saying, maybe you don't believe in it. Sure. But if there is a shred of of truth to any of this evidence, I think it, it's cool in sort of working, like sort of triangulation of of this area. So you look at his, his flight was 4,500 feet into the air. This guy's photo right off the coast of the Moorabin, uh, you know, 
where like close to the airport would have been mm -hmm. that he took off in. And so, like I said, 4,500 feet in the air, this would have been right around that area that this, you know, smudge, whatever you think it was, mm -hmm. would have it's been. super eerie, man, because yeah. it really is the time of day that it would have exactly. happened as the sun's going down, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. I mean, to think that this dude concocted this incredible plan to just disappear, leave his his father behind at least. I mean, I know like apparently he was like dating someone or something, but just to leave his dad behind yeah. and have his dad think that he died. Yeah. And to do so in a way that like no one's ever going to find the serial number of them. There's not going to be any written record, you know, like Nothing. even in personal aircraft sort of, you know, you flying to another airport, there's still logs kept, man. Like, mm -hmm. I just find that one actually to be the least believable. Yeah. Him yeah. potentially crashing because, you know, of glare from the sun, him being somewhat inexperienced. Um, oh, we'll, we'll get into a lot of those yeah. sort of, uh, you know, possible explanations. Which I'm just saying right now we're taking the staged disappearance theory. Yeah. And we're just... It's, we're pushing it off the table. Yeah, I think it's total BS too. And also, um, so you know, like I said before, like he was just—he was so obsessed with, with flying and aviation, and you know, he was friends with everyone at the local airport, and they knew him, and he, you know, he would take these flights fairly often. Um, it's even said that like he would, he would when he, he would fly to King Island, and apparently there was a McDonald's there, and he was even known there for going to this McDonald's, and he was like a little 120, 130 pound dude, but they, they would say that he would order like massive amounts of food. So he was kind of known, you know, he was, yeah, he was known a, as a guy, as a, as a pilot, basically. And also an important detail there, he'd made this flight before. Yeah, exactly. The, well, and this is another thing too, is I think that, you know, like I said, he would, he would volunteer at the local airport multiple times a week. And they said that he, I don't know how many, I think he had more than one sister, but I know he at least had one sister. And apparently, you know, he was probably the one who had to like drive her around. That some days he would even bring his sister. So they were super close. He, he was just really, really connected to his family. And, you know, he had a girlfriend. Uh, one of the things, just kind of throwing this out there that the skeptics kind of say is, oh, well, it was said that he gave a promise ring to his girlfriend I think two weeks before their anniversary. And it's kind of like, I mean, how many times as a dude, as soon as I read that, I was like, come on, man. It's like, how many times have I gotten a gift for my kids or my wife? And I'm just so excited for them to get it. that it's like, yeah, I'm not going to wait till mm -hmm. Christmas. I'm at least. Okay, so he never gave it to her. No, no, no. He did give it to her, okay. but he gave it to her like a week before or two weeks before their anniversary. Mm -hmm. So that says like, oh, he... He knew he was going to excited about it. Well, there, no. Well, the debunkers are saying he knew that he was going to disappear or whatever. So he went ahead and gave her a promise ring right. before it, the anniversary. Okay, that which I think is that's not even like linear in terms yeah, of uh, it's such a big process. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay. Um, but anyway, so there's that with the plumber, and again, these photos are we'll post them in the like on Instagram and stuff. Mm -hmm. But really fascinating. There, like I said, there were eleven call-ins another one that was really cool that was taken from a book called strange skies pilot encounters with ufo ufos by jerome clark is about this this family that came forward several years later 
uh, they claimed to see a UFO and Valentich's plane. An uncle, his son, and two nieces came forward about a possible related sighting on the same evening of October 21st, 1978. They were hunting rabbits at Cape Otway, you know, yeah. like we mentioned Real before. Real close to the uh, photographer. Mm-hmm. Uh, west of Apollo Bay, when one of the girls asked, what is that light? Looking up, the uncle spotted the airplane and identified it as an aircraft light. No, the niece insisted. Uh, the other big green light above the airplane. The four would watch the plane and accompanying light until they disappeared behind uh, the nearby hills. Mm. One thing that's interesting about this is they have gone back to the flight logs of any sort of air traffic in the area on that evening from the location that this family you know, was at. Fred Valentich's airplane would have been the only plane visible in the sky at that time. Mm-hmm. So it couldn't have been like another airplane, you know. It, wow. So no matter yeah. what, they saw no matter his what. plane. Yeah, right. And some sort of something like yeah. a green light or whatever. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing too is like his, you know, when he when he first saw, you know, the UFO, he said that it was a green light. And so another little thing to throw in is like the debunkers say, oh, well, there's like a the Cape Otway lighthouse, um, which is right in that little area. Mm-hmm. They say, oh, well, he saw or they saw, they just saw this this lighthouse. Well, did it have a green light? Like no green light. The Great Gatsby. <laughs> yeah, the, there's no green light. Okay, on, on the lighthouse, there's red and white. So. I mean, last week, I'm just saying, last week I was pulling all kinds of 80s references. This week, I'm pulling some, like, late 90s high school uh, yeah. literature F. Scott Fitzgerald <laughs> references to a green-lighted mm-hmm. uh, lighthouse. So, you know, you just never know what you're going to find never when you know. come, when you put, when you press play on this podcast. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You just know you're going to get, you're going to get something, you're going to get gold. When you turn on that old transistor radio. Man alive. Mm-hmm. Sorry to interrupt. Oh, no, 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 you're fine. Uh, this account was right around uh, like 6 o'clock, 6.30. So, again, it would have been right in that little time frame. There was another man at uh, 6.55 p.m. on Huntingdale Road, close to Morabin Airport, again, uh, a guy by the name of Mr. Farr. Uh, He was an officer in the RAAF Reserve. He supplies like a lot of super technical jargon that doesn't really matter to me. And uh, I don't understand either. But, uh, you know, wind direction and and Mm -hmm. he kind of really gets into it. But basically he said that he observed a shower of very bright metallic scintillations in the sky about 30 with about 30 bright centers and a dark contrail moving from south to north. Hmm. And I think he reported this the next the following day. So, so, I mean, is there a possibility? Was there like, because uh, that sounds to me like a, uh, what's it called? Meteor shower. Was there yeah, like a meteor the, shower in the area or do we know? No, no, no. No meteor shower at all. Uh, some of the debunkers uh, say, because uh, I guess Australia has, has sort of its own, like the Borealis. Mm-hmm. It's called the Aurora Astralis. And they kind of say, well, maybe it was that. But I, I, I guess from that location, you... You wouldn't be able to see that, apparently. Mm. It was kind of ruled out, but I thought it was interesting. Oh, and this is another thing, too. is like all of these accounts, you know, the direction that the plane would have been going in, they all kind of line up also. So it's 
interesting because again, this was at 655. This guy sees all these these lights, these sort of sparkling shower of metallic scintillations. I love that, but I don't totally know what that is. <laughs> um, what's interesting is this would have been moving towards uh, where you know we would see Valentich's aircraft. So the metallic objects in the sky, the shower of them is moving in the dire- moving toward mm-hmm. the plane. Yeah, and then the he saw was. he saw like the like a little like dark you know contrail mm. moving from south to north. So that's interesting too. And again, I'm throwing out the most abstract sort of whatever. But I mean, what if this was like some sort of like portal kind of deal? Mm-hmm. Just just something to think about. Around 5.30 to 6 p.m. in the official report, a child would actually recount uh, seeing an airplane towing a glider. Mm. And that's all that's said about it. But I think that's really interesting because if you're looking at it... Child's eyes. Yeah, it's just, it's odd. Maybe he's seeing just the the UFO itself because Valentich does does mention that uh, it was a long, sort of a long shape. So, and this was at like between 5.30 and 6 p.m. So I don't know, maybe maybe the timing was a little bit off. Who knows? This is a really interesting one, too. And my last one, it's around 7.40 p.m. And this would have been, again, right in that sort of direction, northeast of Adelaide, 385 miles southeast or southwest of where Valentich would have, would have taken off. 28 minutes after the transmission, a man goes out to look for his cat, starts seeing something in the sky. He thought it was a large plane approaching with landing lights on a rocket or a cigar type Hmm. uh, shape, he said. Uh, So he called his wife out. They came out. They watched this for a full seven to ten minutes with colors flashing on both sides. So he ran in to get binoculars, came back out, and when he looked through his binoculars, he, he could see a large triangular yellow and white light laying on its side uh, with blue green and orange pulsating lights and then it would transform to a v-shape he reported this to the edinburgh airport and said i'm convinced this is exactly what the missing pilot saw i will take any and all forms of lie detector test etc wow. so you know he, he, he said it looked like it either appeared to change shape or it actually did change shape man which is kind of wild. And also, it is kind of interesting because like the you know famous Bob Lazar and Area 51 or whatever, he, for all you folks out there that, that don't know who Bob Lazar is, there's an amazing documentary by a guy named Jeremy Corbell. Anyway, he, he, he claimed to have, to have worked on these, these UFOs. And he said that whenever they would fly, when they were kind of like in slow speed, it would almost look like they were on their side and then they would kind of change shape into like, you know, sports mode uh, when they were, you know, going into like higher speeds. So I don't know if that's that has any sort of relation, but it is, you know, it is pretty interesting. Yeah. Bob Lazar working on them in case, again, they didn't know and haven't seen the documentary or just have zero background information about mm-hmm. Bob Lazar, working on them to reverse engineer the technology right. for the government, the U.S. Right. government. Mm-hmm. Man, you know, this is a tough one, dude. Like... If 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 you approach it, if you approach it like in the direction of 
Well, maybe, maybe this kid who was, he wasn't unexperienced. Potentially, mm-hmm. maybe he was just like underexperienced. Yeah. You yeah. know, I, when looking at all this kind of stuff and the theories and stuff, I, look, I've, I found this term that because I'm not a pilot, I had no idea what it was. But have you heard of a graveyard spiral? Yes. And that's part of some of the explanations of, you know, how they kind of write off a lot of his, mm-hmm. a lot of this. So if you've never heard of a graveyard spiral, essentially it is a, it's kind of a mix of a couple different things that, that causes this sort of like a high, like disorient your pilot. Yeah. You get disoriented because of a, um, there's no like visual horizontal reference. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to give you a quick example of I've kind of personally uh, never been in a graveyard spiral, but personally felt that like <laughs> weird or, like disorientation. So when I was in that same seaplane, the, the Cessna, mm-hmm. that had been modified, as we're taking off, the front of the plane just kind of like moves up and you mm-hmm. can't see the lake in front of you. And I'm just thinking first, I mean, the and the pilot isn't like looking out the window. He's just kind of like, I guess, thinking if somebody's there, they're going to move. Mm-hmm. Now, I don't know that for sure. Maybe he has a way of being able to see. I don't think so, though. Okay? Yeah. And so it's just pointed, the the nose of the plane essentially is pointed up toward the sky. So I can no, I can no longer see. You lose your horizon. Yeah, line. you lose the horizon. And so you're kind of like, uh, so... This often happens, they say, whenever you look up a, a graveyard spiral. It commonly happens like late at night, though, mm-hmm. when the pilot has no, like if you're just flying out in the middle of the ocean, there's no, no city bearings. lights. Yeah. Um, or imagine like just flying through complete cloud cover. You know, nowadays, thankfully, the technology exists where a commercial pilot, when you're flying overseas or something like that and you're in clouds, Mm-hmm. You don't really need that visibility because you've got all your instru- instruments working, you know? Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're experienced. So this kid maybe, I mean, 20 years old, I mean, dang, I mean, straight up kid, maybe he just kind of got disoriented and caused a spiral because there were reports, I think somebody said that they saw the plane sort of, I mean, you mentioned it with like the north and south thing that kind of makes me think like, you know, it's just, it's just in a, in a turning sequence. He's just banking and Mm -hmm. kind of circling. And that's why it could be seen like moving in the direction of North and then moving in the direction of South because it's just going through. So maybe this happened, but essentially when they lose orient this, when they become disoriented, Mm -hmm. they don't know what's what. And essentially they go into this like hard bank and it just, messes with them uh, and their center of gravity and everything so much that the pilot kind of is overcompensating for the loss of lift and the plane starts to descend and the pilot senses what they believe to be like the wings being level Mm -hmm. descending. It's so weird, dude. Yeah. What what are the things that I, that I immediately thought of, you know, it's funny that we're talking so much about the Bermuda triangle, but there's a, this sort of, occurrence that happens that a lot of people have encountered around the Bermuda Triangle. Let me preface by saying, I don't think that Valentich had any of this whatsoever. But I do think that a lot of times where you hear of like the graveyard spiral and like that kind of thing, you also hear of this sort of occurrence called electronic fog or the Hutchinson effect, Mm. where, you know, again, there's a lot of these cases in like around Bermuda Triangle where 
you're flying, everything's great. And then you just, it's like you get in this, um, it's almost like it, it's like a bubble. And like, no matter where you go, it just follows you. All of your electronics kind of go haywire. All of your compasses and magnetics, everything's thrown completely off. So that would sort of explain, Mm -hmm. you know, a lot of kind of, you know, a lot of stuff in that Mm -hmm. regard. But again, it was flawless weather. Yeah. You know, it's just scary as the more you read about these dang graveyard spirals, men, like the pilot thinks that if they pull back on the yoke, Mm -hmm. they'll, they'll start to rise. But what that causes them is a steeper, steeper turn, a bank. And so Mm -hmm. they end up, because they think their wings are level, they end up spinning faster and faster and faster until it's just uncontrollable and they they crash. So it's just like, oh. One thing about that particular sort of theory is in this particular plane, the Cessna 182, um, it was, it had a gravity-fed fuel system. Mm -hmm. So if it would have been upside down, it would have completely stalled and like stopped, like turn off, uh, like immediately. Mm -hmm. So that's, you know, a lot of sort of, you know, aircraft aficionados have said, you know, that's not even a possibility. Yeah, so I wasn't talking about it being inverted. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. I think yeah. another one that you're talking about that I saw too was that someone was like, well, maybe he was inverted, which by the way, man, like I know it's possible with a Cessna, but I don't know. Anyway, that just is, it's, uh, it's like that's second place to, ah, he just wanted to, yeah. he didn't like his girlfriend anymore, so yeah. he decided to spend his money, which you know, man, when you're a young kid and you save up every ounce of money that you have mm-hmm. for like some piece of jewelry. Yeah. Well, <laughs> no, that, no, I'm glad you said that because he actually, that, that was another theory that like, oh, well, maybe he owed people money and was just like went out to commit suicide. Mm. He, had, he had over $1,500 in his bank account. Rich. When you're 20 years old? In 1978. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, that's You can pretty, buy a lot of crawfish with that, you know? That's a lot of crawfish. That's a heck of a weekend. Yeah, big pull. But yeah, that that's one of the the theories. The other one is that he somehow, you know, because he did, he did say that his his plane was uh, like sputtering and choking, mm-hmm. and so people have immediately taken that and ran with it and said, well, maybe there was oil on the windshield that was creating like a rainbow effect. And it's like, are you kidding me? Yeah, and so all of these. The reason I wanted to mention sort of the <sighs> graveyard spiral is like, yes. That is a good explanation of what could have happened to him. I'll give you that for sure. Mm-hmm. Especially the more you read about it and stuff. Yeah. Because uh, because of that gravity-fed fuel system, apparently, too, if we, you're in one of those hard banking spirals, it deprives the engine, which causes mm-hmm. the sputtering, which might explain it or whatever. But, yeah, but it would it – would, because I thought that, too. I was like, oh, well, maybe, maybe that does kind of line up. Mm-hmm. But apparently with this plane, like – the like the fuel tank and everything is so small. I mean, it's like you said, it's so really tiny, dude. It's yeah. tiny that it would be an almost immediate thing. You mm-hmm. know what I mean? Yeah. Well, it wouldn't just it, it wouldn't just be like oh, it's stuttering as he's upside down talking to the tower, yeah, stuttering or sputtering. Just it's or sp- interchangeable. Either or. Um, my, also, my point also is that also that occurrence. I just got to throw in here that also happens typically at like really really high mm. elevation. And he was or he altitude. was just forty or altitude. Yeah. He was just, <laughs> he was on a mountain. Uh, <laughs> no, but he he was only forty five uh, hundred feet in the air, so he yeah. he had just kind of taken off. So I, I say all that to say that's a that's a plausible explanation for that specific thing in this mm-hmm. event. But what about all the other 
green light sightings. We now know that it yeah. wasn't a green light from the lighthouse. Nope. Uh, it happened kind of across that area. Mm-hmm. It's just there's no explanation for that. But that was that oil. Hey, man, did the little yeah. girl have oil in her eyes? I know. You know? So, man, I don't know. Something weird is happening here. And I got to say, man, I, I love this mystery because it reminds me of Unsolved Mysteries, man. The TV oh, show. Oh, yeah. This this would have been a good one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know what? I bet, dude, I bet. Because it does ring a bell to me. I I swear, it sounds man, familiar. I didn't even look into that. Yeah. Hmm. In 1978, a young pilot named Frederick Valenti took off from Moorabun Airport in Australia. 47 minutes later, a frantic Valentic radio that he had encountered a bizarre light source. Then the radio transmissions abruptly ceased and the plane vanished as if plucked from the sky. Join me for another edition of Unsolved Mysteries. Yeah, well, if we find it, we'll look. And if we find it, we'll post it on, on Instagram. Mm-hmm. Cause, yeah, this this is like exactly yeah. something. It's got all the elements of it, man. Yeah. It's like with that guy's narration, with this story, you go to, <laughs> you, you, it's time for, your mom says, it's time for bed. You turn it off and you're like, well, I'm terrified. <laughs> I'm not sleeping. <laughs> yeah. Mom, can I sleep with you tonight? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so so I, I hope we've, you know, laid out, I know it's been kind of all over the place, but there's just, there's like so much, but then also so little. Well, I mean, the last thing I think we should say about this dude is to this day, 2021, Mm -hmm. zero Mm -hmm. pieces of this aircraft have ever been recovered. Yeah. The fact that to this day, nobody knows is just fat. Those kind of unsolved mysteries, man. Yeah. That is fascinating. Which which again, man, like it really does make you... Yeah, man, you just feel so bad for his, like, family and stuff. Because, like I said in the beginning, it's like you have just, not only do you have no closure, but you just, it's like, this is just such a bizarre event. You hear, you know, just imagine being his dad. You hear, I mean, you're 20 years old, but at the end of the day, it's like, especially to his dad, it's like he's just a kid, you Mm -hmm. know. And you hear your son just, like, absolutely terrified. And then you hear 17 seconds of like a pulsating sound with like like uh screeching metal and stuff. screeching metal oh this is another one which i think is hilarious so apparently he was kind of known to when he would get in the airplane his girlfriend has said one time that uh he you know he was kind of like i guess like real lanky and skinny and he would he would pull his seat kind of back mm-hmm. and it would make this like screeching noise and immediately the debunker, the debunkers are just like, that's what it was. That was the screeching sound. It's like, so he did this for 17 seconds. It's like, <laughs> come on, dude. I, I think here's, and here's the thing. I don't want it to sound like we're only true believers and we put down anybody who disbelieves this stuff yeah. and it's, and it's gotta be something weird. I, I all I want to say is the difference in us and, and the people that are like that is they say, oh, well, it, this little thing happened, then it had to be this. Mm-hmm. Whereas for us, we throw out a million different possibilities and right. say, could be. We, we could be. We still yeah. have no idea, though. Yeah, that truly is the difference. It's like those, there, I think you're either one of those couldn't, it's either you're a couldn't be person yeah. or you're a could be person. And for me, like all of good, the yeah. explanations except the one that I have the hardest time believing is that he just concocted this elaborate plan 
you know, was an extremely ambitious kid and just mm-hmm. wanted to just disappear. Yeah. Uh, that that doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. The one that is, I would say, the one that I believe is plausible that has zero sort of um, paranormal flavor to it at all mm-hmm. would be that he was just underexperienced, got disoriented somehow, ended up in one of these graveyard spirals, mm-hmm. and then but again, maybe man. tried to shoot off a flare. Uh-oh, my flare gun's not red. It's green. I'm <laughs> disrespectful. But, you know. So disrespectful. Uh, well, one, one thing, too, that, that I probably need to circle back on is um, – there and God, I've looked everywhere, and there's so little to find. But there are a few places on online where you see, and it's from like this, this. And again, I can hear people rolling their eyes right now. But it's like from this Australian uh, sort of UFO club, if you will. Mm-hmm. Apparently, they've tracked down the family of this farmer, and I said this on the. Uh, Last, you know, the, on the first episode, but you know, there was apparently this farmer that would see like early in the morning, the next day, like six in the morning, as just as the sun was coming up, uh, he saw, you know, above his his field, literal UFO, and then a plane attached to the side of it with oil pouring out the side, and he said he even took a screwdriver and carved the tail number on his tractor. I just, I think it's worth noting, but it's so hard to find anything about right. this online yeah. that, but my God, what a fascinating. Superman. I mean, if there's any truth to it, like, wow, yeah. that's amazing. It's crazy, man. One thing before, before we go, like, as promised, I kind of, here's the thing. This area of the mm-hmm. world just has a plethora of just, stuff that we don't know about necessarily like there are some famous cases Tyler, i don't know if you've heard of the the one from december 1978 so same year couple couple months maybe a couple weeks later basically mm. from this happening out in new zealand this australian film crew essentially tried to capture this footage of um what they saw these mysterious lights in the sky as they were flying mm. it was called like the kia Cora. um no i don't know about that. oh man see like and we could just open up a whole new, like, that incident. <clears throat> well, there's a bunch of these cases. This seems like a kind of a hot spot for, mm-hmm. um, for UFO happenings. And it's like, do we want to do four parts? I mean, I think people were probably ready to, uh, to maybe to visit another part of the world on our show. But mm-hmm. I, for one, have to say this area is extremely fascinating. You know, I was kind of, and I know I've mentioned We've, of course, mentioned this book before on the show, Passport to Magonia by Jacques Vallée. Mm -hmm. But I know I've mentioned about the book and how, like, man, really the last 25% of it is just chronicles of just date after date after date around the world of little, like, mini write-ups of accounts. And Mm -hmm. so I was looking through it, and there are a ton in Australia, like July 19th, 1965, Van Cluse, Australia. Mr. Crow was attracted by a strong light on the beach and walked within 20 meters of the craft producing it, which took off with a yellow-orange light. Estimated diameter, 7 meters. Height, 3 meters, with blue-green edges. There's that green again. Yeah. Also, Min Min lights. Yeah. August 3rd, 1965, Carnarvon, Australia. Dr. Antonin Kukla and Mrs. Andre Lawrence saw an object dive toward them. They switched off their car headlights and got out of the vehicle to observe this oval object, which hovered at ground level, its mm. color changing from orange to fluorescent green, 
before it took off at high speed, Man. right? And so, like, that's amazing. There are so many different accounts, man, in in this area. Were the Min Min lights? What color were they? Yeah, they varied, but everything from you know, um, like orange to green. Yes, to, yes, yes, yeah. exactly. I mean that that one in particular kind of matches that same sort of explanation. Mm-hmm. So, well, and also, I mean, if you if if it did like a color change, I mean, that kind of does go back to the you know the guy that was talking about it sort of changing shape or whatever, going from like green to orange to mm-hmm. blue green. Dude, have you ever heard of the book uh, Return to Magonia? Mm-mm. It's called oh. it's a, it's called Return to Magonia: Investigating UFOs in History by author Chris Abeck and Martin Show. I mean, I love Martin Shore, but <laughs> one of the chapters details the amazing story of five egg-shaped metallic objects seen speeding across the sky over Port Augusta in 1947. Oh, this is from the Return to Magonia. Yeah, mm-hmm. it says a man and his wife witnessed five gray oblong objects pass overhead and lock. South Australia. Hours later, rail yard workers independently saw five egg-shaped objects speeding across the sky over Port Augusta, also in South Australia. Man. After a thorough search for the witnesses, they concluded they existed as stated and the sightings were not a media prank. Yeah, it's, it's all these like little, again, like that's that was one of the, the main things I really kind of wanted to like lay out, you know, successfully is just the idea that like if we do look at these as fact, like I said, it's like this sort of triangulation effect of like other people having these same sightings mm-hmm. around the same thing that, you know, kind of link it all to like the same location, the same, uh, you know, altitude, the same yada, yada, yada. But like it is interesting when like there's just these multiple reports seeing these same objects. There's a bunch of stuff, man, especially out in the outback. Like there's one in February of 1973 around the same area that Erie Highway. Mm-hmm. The same thing as, you know, the same highway that the Knowles saw their um, object. Uh, four people in three separate cars, dude, all spotted mm-hmm. this thing in a clearing as they passed this orange rectangular, or I'm sorry, orange rectangle similar to an illuminated door in the scrub, or, you know, in the bush. With That's a amazing. Strange, listen to this. Get ready for it. With a strange figure standing outside. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. So almost like one of the like the monoliths that we've well almost a monolith or going back to episode one of this like season a portal. a portal man yeah you know yeah. like we talked about with Bryce yeah I mean I definitely thought portal but I was trying to like yeah be cool and and so I mean even <laughs> even in in South Australia you know tons and tons of videos come out all the time there's one that's relatively. Uh, recent and like I don't know, you know, it looks like this like burn this thing just like coming into the atmosphere and just like on fire, kind of going through the air, and it was kind of uh, over Tasmania, and so basically South Australia's astronomical society say it's pretty common for people to see weird stuff, <laughs> you mm-hmm. know. Yeah, it's it's kind of like I mean, honestly, you know, looking at it, especially with the area of Valentich there on the coast. It reminds me of like Florida, like mm. in the Gulf. Yeah. There's Florida's a hotbed of of UFO activity, and and I think part of it is just because, you know, unlike where we live now, it's like we have mountains and hills, and it's mm-hmm. very sort of you know mountainous, sort of I guess. But you know, you're you're on the coast there, and it's just nothing but wide open skies and your your horizon. So, you know, I think you, people can just they're able to see what's going on a lot better. I think some of the, like, there's a couple of heavy hitters that I just want to kind of briefly talk about that will end up, I think, 
getting their own episode at some point, mm-hmm. just as an interesting case um, that we need to dive into further. But one is the 1966 Westall sighting. Yeah, so that I said that originally. That's yeah. like that's that's Australia's Roswell, basically. Mm-hmm. And just to kind of give a brief synopsis, that more or less around 6 a.m. on the 6th of April, 1966, mm-hmm. over 200 people at Clayton South's Westall High School. Yep. Also, boy, they go to school pretty yeah, early in dude. Australia, huh? They I ran outside to behold that. an astonishing sight. A trio of full-blown flying saucers. They were mm-hmm. hovering over the trees, went down into the trees and disappeared for a minute or two, then rose back up, banked to its side and took off mm-hmm. from what like a 13-year-old said, like at a thousand miles an hour. Yeah. Of course... We'll dive into that one further because that sounds incredible. Another mm-hmm. one in 1969, February of 1969, near Mount Gambier. Again, mm-hmm. not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but essentially, this guy, this farmer's like pig houses, all of a sudden lit up like a spotlight was just peering straight mm-hmm. through there, and they saw these like eerie red and green flashing lights in the skies over their sort of rural neighborhood. Wow. Ton, like countless cases reported that week that had similar uh, details. I will say this idea of like the like the bush or the outback, you know, because it is so such a harsh kind of uncompromising area that is not made for human, you know, inhabitation. So like the idea that that things are happening like out there is just it's, it's Dude, pretty fascinating. Absolutely, man. I, I mean, I can't wait to to go into like the the cryptids. Oh yeah, the Yowie is mm-hmm. is a big thing down there. And lastly, this one I know people have heard of, but it's the Kelly Cahill abduction. Yep, yep, that's a big um, one. Too. Again, this is actually relatively speaking more recent. It was 1993. Mm-hmm. She was driving from a friend's house, and her and her husband basically witnessed what they made out to be like this large blimp with orange lights in the sky above them. Mm. And um, I think other people witnessed it and stuff. Again, we're just kind of giving you the synopsis of these, the synopsis of these incredible cases that we're going to dive into mm-hmm. each. But, you know, later she was hospitalized with severe stomach pains. And here's the crazy part, just to kind of leave you with, she discovered a triangle-shaped mark near her navel. Mm. So, you know, yeah. even though we're not going to have a part four about Australia, we're definitely going to dive into some of these cases that are just, we can't yeah. ignore, right? Yeah. Cool, man. Well, uh, look, I think our first visit to Australia together with our listeners has been a productive one. Mm-hmm. I mean, just incredible stories, a lot of mystery, <laughs> a lot of mystery. mystery. And I think it goes without saying that we really want to go to Australia. Yeah. Field trip. I mean, I'm totally down, man. So thank you so much for being on this three-part journey with us as we looked into the incredible, fascinating UFOs that are flying around in the skies of Australia. You know, we still don't know. Some of them are still a mystery today. You know, mm-hmm. even you know what Matt and his uh, friend Mark saw in the suburbs of Sydney is going to lead to a future episode about freaking creatures sky in the sky. Yeah. Yeah. Weird stuff that that happens Mm -hmm. i would say through history too which is pretty pretty oh yeah yeah we uh thanks again to matt and mark your little audio accounts were awesome Mm -hmm. and uh i mean really kind of inspired the whole our whole three-part journey here Mm -hmm. if we want to be found woody where can we be found man the best place that people can find us and 
interact with us on a daily basis for now is our Instagram page. And you can find that at That Would Be Rad. And it's just a great place to kind of come back and see some more details. Like oftentimes we'll post what we call episode artifacts where we have, you know, pictures of these people. So you can put a name with faces, uh, places, and all of that. I mean, right now we have a post where you can actually see the actual Nullabore plane, the Nullabore, or I'm sorry, the um, Mandrabilla Roadhouse Mm. as it looks like today, an aerial Mm -hmm. view of it. And you'll see like... If this is what it looks like now, just imagine how barren it was in 1988. I just don't. I don't think anything has changed since. So, that's a great place to get more context to the things we talk about on our episodes, but then also to kind of interact with us and tell us your own stories and your own theories about things. Yeah, uh, definitely. You know, if you want to be like Matt and you have a story that you want to lay out in like a voice recording, or if you know, if you just want to send us an email and then let us read it and throw in some some cool music and stuff or sound design feel free to shoot us a an email to that would be radpod at gmail.com it's been a blast we're uh, we're happy that you know we're happy about our first foray into the land down under so uh like we always say we love you we appreciate you and as always be rad that's the way
Oh, man, I wasn't even recording. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Can you imagine? Okay, let's stop it.